The scripture this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. Didn't didn't bring my thing up here. (laughs) Verses 6 through 13. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. He has told us also that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, during all our distress and persecution, we have been encouraged about you through your faith. For we now live if you continue to stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. It is doubtless the case that the most important person in the New Testament beyond Christ is the Apostle Paul. Though his sometimes fiery personality and certain of his writings about the role of women in the church have drawn a varied reception throughout the centuries, more than any other historical figure, Paul was responsible for taking the small but dedicated movement that grew up around the belief that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead and was indeed the long-expected Messiah. And for spreading that movement from its base in Judaism into the geography and language and culture of the Greco-Roman world, Paul thus positioned Christianity to become the worldwide religion that it is today. As we read Paul's letters particularly if we read them more as a reflection of his of the story of his life than the doctrines which have arisen from them, we become aware that Paul knew from personal experience that not all human relationships can be mended, that not all conflicts can be resolved, that not all divisions can be healed even those relationships that begin with a common faith. To use one example that is quite obscure, a follower named Demas signed up for the Christian movement with the initial enthusiasm and commitment that most of us bring to something new. The first time Paul was imprisoned in Rome, 
Nicodemus stood by, along with Luke the physician, and was sufficiently loyal to Paul that when Paul wrote the Colossians, he conveyed greetings from Demas and Luke. Demas also stood with Paul as Paul implored Philemon to welcome back the fugitive slave Onesimus, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. Yet by the time Paul was nearing the end of his life, again imprisoned in Rome, Paul wrote Timothy that Demas, in love with the present world, had deserted him, leaving Paul virtually alone and leading Paul to ask Timothy to come and visit him in prison. Come before winter, Paul wrote, likely knowing but not wanting to say that he might not survive the impending season of cold in the prison block that had become his home and to which Demas had ceased his visits. Come before winter. Paul was aware that not all human relationships ended in reconciliation, in peace, in forgiveness, in healing. He knew the power and persistence of human division. This context makes Paul's words to the Thessalonians that are our epistle epistle reading for today more significant than they might be if we just read them or hear them at face value. These words are written with Paul's awareness of the human propensity for division. But they are also written with a hope and pathway to something better. You see, Paul has a close relationship with a small congregation that he has founded in Thessalonica, but after which he had moved on to Athens and Corinth. But he became aware that the Thessalonians had become shaken in their faith by the persecutions that they had seen and by which they were threatened. Paul feared that his labor among them might be in vain. Paul had dispatched Timothy to strengthen and encourage the Thessalonians for the sake of their faith. And Timothy had returned to Paul with good news of their faith and love, presumably both for God and for Paul. Timothy also reported that they were anxious for Paul to come and visit them so that they might all see one another face to face. There is nothing like good news received in a prison cell. Paul could not wait to grab the pen in hand and scrawl across the parchment in his own handwriting, for now we live if you continue to stand firm in the faith. The aging apostle and prisoner drew life from how well his former charges the Thessalonians flourished, both as human beings and as people of faith. For now we live, he said, if you stand firm in the Lord. Now there is a secular applicability 
within the structure and movement of Paul's words. I need not remind you that in the human communities in which we live and work, we are increasingly beset with and marked by division with which none of us is happy. Friendships, marriages, families, neighborhood and condo associations, schools, PTAs, college and professional sports, churches and synagogues, political parties, faculties and law firms and medical practices and trade associations and government relation offices and think tanks, all are marked by division. An opinion piece in yesterday's Wall Street Journal is entitled, America is Addicted to Outrage. Is there a cure? Yet as human beings, in the, in the midst of division and outrage, we still have the capacity to draw life when others flourish. When our spouses are doing well, when our children are doing well, when our fellow students or teachers or colleagues at work are doing well, when the most significant people in our lives are living up to their best and happiest potential, we live. We live when others are doing well. What is true within the culture of our nation is true beyond our borders as well. To the extent that other nations and peoples of the world are able to flourish with enough food, with enough shelter, with freedom from disease, with freedom from tyranny and oppression and torture and abuse, we in our nation, in our land, flourish as well. We live as others have life. Again, the Apostle Paul knew that not all divisions can be solved, that not all conflicts can be reconciled, that not all people can live in peace with one another, but that realistic knowledge did not stop him from living toward what he wrote, namely, that we live when others flourish. But Paul is not simply a secular thinker. His actual words to the Thessalonians were, we live because you continue to stand firm in your faith. Now, I never want to assume that everyone sitting in these pews, nor sitting in this chancel or choir loft, has faith that is never beset by weakness, doubt, division, challenge. I know that I do not always stand firm in faith. And I doubt that Patrick and Whitney always do either. We are all subject to challenge in our faith. But I also know that the more people who are close to me are experiencing growth and renewal and strength in their faith, the more my own faith begins to heal, begins to find restoration, begins to grow in strength. When I look out and see you all, 
nod in recognition or smile quietly at something that I've said or write and tell me something you got out of a sermon or write and, and push back at a sermon. The coming to life that your response represents brings me back to life. I experience life in my faith when I see life in your faith. We live, said Paul, when you continue to grow firm in your faith. Now this sermon has been a little more uh, abstract and maybe prosy than mine usually are. There have been no stories or poems, no passages from Hemingway or Dostoevsky with a nod to Casey on the latter. Part of the reason is that I did not start writing this sermon until after the officer training session that we had yesterday morning. My tardiness arose, as some of you know, from the fact that after a wonderful four days in Cleveland over Thanksgiving, with 16 members of Maggie's extended family, all younger than us, except her mother, Mary Elizabeth Ellis. Her mother passed away unexpectedly Friday morning. She was 98 and a half. And in the family lottery, even over Thanksgiving, I had predicted that she would live to be 100. But I was wrong. In a family that four generations back includes Presbyterian ministers and missionaries, it has fallen my lot as the most geographically close preacher who, believe it or not, can preach her funeral sermon with the fewest tears to be such preacher this coming Tuesday. I have chosen this non-funeral passage, which is today's lectionary selection from Paul on which to preach. And this is part of what I plan to say. Mary Elizabeth Johnson was born in Canton, Ohio in 1920. She was baptized in a large Gothic Presbyterian church that now struggles with just a handful of members. Her father died when she was 16, right before the advent of Social Security leaving her mother to support Mary Elizabeth and her brother and sister by taking boarders into their home. Mary Elizabeth managed to scrape together the money to attend the College of Worcester. Is that pronounced correctly? Thank you. I never get it right. A nearby Presbyterian college where she met Paul Ellis, a child of the mission field in what was then Persia, who had also enrolled at Worcester. They married and moved to Chicago, and he attended McCormick Theological Seminary. After graduation, they moved to Conch, New Mexico, where Paul was pastor of a church on an Indian reservation, then to Ashtabula, Ohio, to Wichita Falls, Texas, and ultimately to El Paso, where he organized a church filled with young military families many of whom worked at the White Sands Missile Range, and where he served for over 25 years with her at his side 
in a traditional role. Along the way, they gave birth to four children, the youngest of whom is my wife, Maggie. A defining moment in all their lives occurred when their oldest child, Judy, who had graduated from the Juilliard School and was a voice professor at the University of Illinois, was found at age 30 to have a brain tumor. Surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital saved her life following a seizure, but she emerged with significant cognitive and speech impairment. Mary Elizabeth and Paul took Judy and her two preschool daughters back into their home in El Paso. They raised the daughters and cared for Judy most of the next 30 years until Judy's death in 2004. Mary Elizabeth thus raised her four children, her oldest child twice, her oldest child's two daughters, and she played a significant role in raising Maggie's three children for the 10 years that she lived with her. Over time, Mary Elizabeth became the matriarch of a large family spread all over the country. I uh, never shrink back from saying, having come from a very small family myself, that when she turned 90, she hosted for herself an East Coast birthday party in Cleveland, and then six months later, a West Coast birthday party in San Francisco. Each party was attended by between 70 and 100 people, and there was very little overlap. And this is when she was 90. When she turned 95, there were 65 family members plus some longtime friends that celebrated in Cleveland. And mercifully, she forewent a West Coast party for her 95th. She had 10 grandchildren, 17 great-grandchildren, as well as numerous cousins and nieces and nephews on both sides. Within her extended family are many strands of accomplishment and change and tragedy that have marked our nation during the nearly century of her life. Her family has contained a nuclear physicist, a prep school headmaster, ministers and missionaries, physicians, artists, a CIA officer, and countless teachers. There have been within her family a drowning and likely suicide. There has been addiction. There have been divorces. Religiously, there have been dyed-in-the-wool Presbyterians, evangelicals, fundamentalists, and many who wrestle with atheism, both old and new, that Jim is going to talk about, what, next week? Okay. Politically, they are divided as we are as a nation. In the Thanksgiving after the 2016 presidential election, 
left no words unspoken at the dinner table (laughs) over which Mary Elizabeth presided with only a few of the words spoken softly, almost none of the words spoken rationally, but none throwing her for a loop. At some point, nearly all in her family have migrated toward her to celebrate one of her birthdays, to look at old photographs, to regale her with stories or be regaled by stories from her. And they have turned to her for the Solomonic wisdom that she possessed. Now, the reason I've chosen this passage from which to preach on Tuesday is like the Apostle Paul, after whom her husband and son were named, Mary Elizabeth Ellis has drawn life as others around her have flourished. When that flourishing was of the secular variety, it brought her life. One of her sadnesses was not quite being mobile enough this last spring to travel to New York and watch her great-granddaughter graduate from Columbia. When it was a flourishing in faith, it brought to Mary Elizabeth's dyed-in-the-wool Presbyterianism even more dyed-in-the-woolness. No matter what changes were occurring among members of her family, people were always welcome at her table, always striving to stay up as late as she would stay up for conversation. At 98 and a half, she had her eyesight, some of her hearing, all of her mental faculties. She never stopped drawing life from others as they flourished in life, in faith, or in both. Now, I know that the Apostle Paul is not someone with whom, if we read him closely, most of us will always agree on everything. I did not always agree with my mother-in-law, and certainly her youngest daughter, my wife, did not always agree with her. But it was an honor to know her. It was an honor to become part of her family at age 52 when I did. It will be an honor to preach her service. Like the apostle, she is one of the people in the world who have helped me see that we truly live when we see others around us flourish in life and in faith. Amen.